All right, all right, C12. Good, find your seats. There's some people in the back looking for seats. If you could squish it in the middle, they can grab them on the ends. Uh, I would just like to uh, preemptively apologize to uh, whichever of you gentlemen I just ran into in the boys' bathroom. Um, I very decidedly walked in there thinking it was the women's restroom. And when I say decidedly, I mean I literally ran into you literally in the bathroom. I don't exactly know who you are. I tried not to make eye contact or any other kind of contact. So uh, I apologize to you and we'll just pretend that we don't know each other. No. Well, here we are. This is actually the last message in this series, Vice and Virtues. I hope you guys are getting uh, and submitting your questions for the You Ask For It series and any other fun you know, things that you would like to see happen inside of those weeks in June. But today's our final week, and we've been talking about replacing cultural vices with biblical virtues. Because in 2 Peter 1.5, it says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue are these characteristics that speak to integrity, and that speak to having character, a person of virtue. And you guys, the first week, listed a whole lot of things that you thought a person of virtue would have, mostly based on people you know that don't have them, if you remember that list. We talked about responsibility versus irresponsibility. And then Alex last night so brilliantly talked about uh, gossip and restraint. And we all felt convicted uh, about our words and how we use them. Here we go this week. Are you ready? Here's what we're talking about. Yes. Self-control and lust. I know. Buckle up. Oh, some, some clapping. Okay. I hope it's for the self-control piece. But this is what we're doing today. <clears throat> so love, sex, and purity. These extraordinary gifts from God. How many of you, like, went to youth group or you kind of grew up, you probably still are in the purity culture where you wore purity rings or you nailed a stake in the ground or you filled out a card or you walked forward or prayed for a second virginity, you know? Like, those, <laughs> did you have those kinds of things? Like, I had those things growing up in youth group. Like, for real. I mean, this is what you did. Um, so this idea of love, sex, and purity is something that, I think church has been talking about for a long time, but I wonder if sometimes it's been almost uh, creating a fear-based culture or even teaching about it as though virginity is the goal or virginity is the thing that we're all striving for. And I want to take a different look at it tonight. Now, don't get too excited. I'm not going to tell you that not being a virgin is something to aim for. Don't, don't hear that. <clears throat> but I do want to give you a different paradigm tonight. I want to take us into scripture and see what the Bible actually has to say about self-control and lust. Like, what did God put into his word that he wants us to absorb as being true? See, the love, sex, and purity are extraordinary gifts from God, but we refuse the gifts and blessings of them when we live according to the world's definition of them. Here's what I have found to be true in our culture, and not just today, but honestly, throughout all of time. The world will call something love that I think God would call lust. And the world would call something strict that I think the Holy Spirit says is just self-control. And we've really got to like wade through some very confusing things in order to let those truths imprint on our soul. So I'm going to take you to a passage in Scripture tonight. Again, we're going to cover a little bit of real estate in the Bible. Um, this is rarely a passage that's used to talk about uh, self-control and lust, but I find that it is uh, one of my favorite to use when we're talking about it. And so we are going to look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Brothers, but in order to do that, I need to give you some context. So let me tell you about Esau, and let's go back, way back, to his grandpa named Abraham. Abraham is one of the most famous men in the Bible. 
I mean, it was Abraham that actually begins to carry most of the story throughout all of Scripture. He is known in history as the father of nations. Abram actually means exalted father, which was tough for a long time because while he was known as exalted father, he and his wife were unable to have children. And then in the book of Genesis, a promise was given to him, maybe many of you know it, where God said to Abram, out of your family will come nations, great kings who will rule the world, and the king who will rule all the other kings. So he received this promise that he was going to give birth to generations, yet they'd been unable to have children. For years, no child came. And then Abraham and his wife Sarah, at the ripe age of 90 gave birth to a son. And we read that God waited, and this is, this is actually what you can read in the scriptures. It says, God waited until Abraham was as good as dead for the promise to be fulfilled. So that there would be no mistaking that it was God that did it. And Isaac was born. And then Isaac married Rebekah. And this is where it gets tricky. Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau a forked branch in the family tree. But remember that God's promise was that through Abraham's seed, the people of the earth would be blessed. So only one of the boys could carry with him the continuation of the promise. Only one of them, one of the twins, could hold inside of him the favored anointing that God had placed in and through Abraham. By cultural rights, it should have been the firstborn, which means that the rugged, hairy, skillful hunter, uh, rough outdoorsman of the field, Esau, uh, it should have been him. Jacob was the secondborn and actually was considered far more domestic and liked to stay in the house. He was not the hunter. He was uh, more of inside the gathering and the cooking. Esau and Jacob had very little in common. Other than the fact that they were both vying for their father's attention and affection. Which brings us to our story today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to start in verse 29. Now, if you've got your devices with you and you're looking it up, I'm actually going to be using the New Living Translation, NLT, Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. It'll also be on the screen. And we're going to read a little, then we're going to stop and talk, and then we're going to read a little. We're going to kind of dissect it as we go. Verse 29. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. What do we call that? Hangry, right? Like Esau comes home hangry. He's exhausted and he's hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. Verse 31, all right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Does, does that seem extreme to you? Does that seem like perhaps Jacob had sort of premeditated, awaiting the moment that something like this might arise? I mean, that he would just come up with something like that? Give me your birthright, which may not mean a whole lot to us right now in our culture, but then it was a big deal. It wasn't just a big deal. It was the deal. The birthright of the firstborn son assured him of three things. Here's what it meant. If you were the firstborn son... At first, you got a double portion of the inheritance, a double portion. That meant Esau was supposed to get a double portion um, of what Isaac would pass on simply for being born a minute earlier. For the twins, it would mean that Esau got two-thirds and Jacob got one-third. It meant that the firstborn would have a leadership role. Uh, think CEO of the family business. If there was ever a disagreement on how things were run, all siblings had to defer to the firstborn. But most significantly, here's what it meant to be the firstborn. You were going to receive a spiritual blessing. That would mean that Esau would act as the priest 
of their home. And he would receive the promise from God through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and then Esau, which would then give way to the birth of who? Who eventually would be birthed from that line? Jesus. All right? This is a big deal. Real big deal. But because Esau was the firstborn, no one could come along and take it from him. It couldn't be stolen from him. Now, it could be given up, but nobody could come and sweep the rug out from under him. It was his. He owned it. So bear this in mind as we read this. Understand the ludicrous nature of what Jacob's demand was. Give me your future for a bowl of soup. This is the conversation. Esau should have been outraged. The moment those words escaped from Jacob's mouth, Esau should have risen up in anger. Give you my future? Trade all that God has promised me? All that God wants to do in my life? Now, this is the moment, um, if you're watching the movie of this, that you want to intervene. Have you ever wished you could go back to your high school self and tell yourself what would happen to your future self if your younger self made the stupid decision you were about to make? Like, if you could just go back and go, all right, listen, here's the deal. This guy's an idiot. You don't want to date him. You don't know that yet. Or this girl, she's crazy. I'm just telling you. Back the bus up. Like, Listen to your future self, right? I have those things. I have those things I wish I could go back and do. And this is one of those things. Like, I wish I could go back and talk to Esau in this moment. I would go back and grab his face. And I would say to him, Esau, from this moment forward, when God introduces himself, he is going to call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you do this, if you trade this in, he will forever be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will be cut out from the greatest plan in all of history. Slow down. Take a minute. Think it through. There is no soup worth selling your soul for. Verse 32. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Let's be clear. He's not dying. Can we all agree to that? He's not dying. He's been out working all day. His mouth is probably parched. His stomach is growling. Does he have an intense and extreme desire? Yes. Is he lusting in the true sense of the word after food? Absolutely. Wanting it, wanting it, wanting it, but is he dying? No. And this is the point of no return. This is the slow motion moment in the movie where you just want to like dive in, right? And like knock the bowl of soup out of his hand. Verse 33, but Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. Actually, let's go back. Just a note I just thought of in verse 32 when he says, I'm dying of salvation. What good is my birthright to me now? Do you see how he's trading like right now gratification uh, for something that could be forever and future? My, my future is not good to me in this present. So I will surrender my present because I'm not yet in the future. It's so short-sighted and selfish, isn't it? Okay. Back to, back to verse 33. So Esau swore an oath. Esau did what? He swore an oath. And this is back in the day that if you said something and swore an oath, it's the same thing today as like signing a contract. People's words actually meant something back then, right? Like if you shook a hand or you promised and you didn't fulfill it, it was considered illegal. So when he swore an oath, it was like having a pen and putting it to paper, and making a binding agreement, thereby, and what did he do? Selling all his rights, all his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. And just like that, the future changed. Just like that. In one moment of lust. One moment where he thought that the gnawing hunger in his stomach was the thing that needed satisfied. One moment where he chose to only see his current surroundings rather than hope and believe that what God had promised for the future was really true. He gave up his calling, y'all, for a can of Campbell's. This is what he did. He literally wrote himself out of the story of Jesus Christ. And then the next morning, guess what? Esau woke up hungry again, didn't he? The next day, when he would go out working in the fields, don't we know that he's going to come back and he's going to be hungry again. And he's going to go to Jacob. Jacob, give me some food. And does Esau have anything to offer? Not a thing. Because when you look for immediate gratification, you're looking for something that's only temporary. It cannot fulfill you forever. It will only meet the moment. It will not meet your future. It will not solve it for the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. You, that's why this is, how, this is how addiction starts. This is how um, unhealthy relationships start. Have you ever been in an unhealthy relationship and you so wanted to break up and you just you keep going back to each other? And you've broken up like 20 times? And then you get back together and then you break up and then you get back together and you break up and then you get back together and you break up because you're just getting a fix off each other. Because you're looking for this moment of immediate gratification, making yourself feel better, stop the pain, stop the hunger, and then the next day, suddenly you're seeing clearly again. When it comes to love, sex, and purity, so many people are willing to sell their soul for a bottle of soup that only satisfies temporarily. It's a desire for more, settling for less. The desire, the hunger for sex is actually good. I want you to know this. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when God told Adam and Eve, you know what, just make babies. What he's saying to them is just have a whole lot of sex. Like sex is a good thing. God created. He gave us the desire. He put it within us to want this. It's God-given. It's why it's so powerful. It's so powerful because when God gives things, he gives powerful things. God doesn't give weak things. God gives powerful things. So it should be no surprise to us that this is a struggle in in managing self-control to help us lead this desire, honestly, and keep it on the rails. But I want to give you a little bit of... um, I don't want to just stand up here and tell you, I'm going to give you some really practical things. But before I give you some practical things, I, I want to give you a little bit of theology, some sex theo- theology. Can, are you all right with that? There actually is sex theology. It exists. Like, why it's so powerful. And I quickly, this was maybe two or three months ago I was here filling in, and I drew this real quick on the board. It was like a 30-second thing. Um, but it's actually a much bigger teaching, and I wanted to include it in this message on why it actually is so powerful and why when it enters a relationship and the relationship goes sideways or, um, or maybe this itself is what causes the relationship to go sideways and a relationship that was once very secure and confident becomes insecure and less confident, there is a real spiritual theological reason for that. You and I are both made in the image of God. Genesis tells us that, that man and woman were made to reflect God's image. Now, God is three in one, one in three, correct? The Trinity is what we call that. The Father, the Son, and the what? Yeah, so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does it help if I write it all out? Yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in one, 
1 and 3. It's one of the great mysteries of all time. But because we're made in God's image, we are also 3 and 1, 1 and 3. There are three components to us that make up the whole. If you want to think of it this way, you can think of the Holy Spirit as being our mind, our emotions. The Son, Jesus, being our body, the physical. And think of the Father as being our soul, right? That which lasts in eternity, the spiritual. Spiritual physical, emotional, we are all three of those things. And when you try and take the physical and pull it out here and let it operate in a world of sin, we think we can do that without it affecting our emotional and spiritual well-being. So we think that we can live as followers of Jesus in a relationship or not in a relationship, and let our sexuality spin around out here, completely out of alignment with the rest of us, and then we often wonder why we feel broken, fractured, or unfulfilled. It's because until you bring the physical back into alignment, you will be operating out of joint. Does that make sense? So, because we're all three and one, one and three, when you, your spiritual, physical, emotional, comes in contact with another person and physical things happen, sex happens, your spiritual, emotional, and physical binds itself to theirs. This is why when God created husband and wife, he said the two will become what? One. He wasn't being figurative. He was being quite literal. He was saying when two people come together and their mind, body, and soul comes together with someone else's mind, body, and soul, they become one. Have you ever tried to separate two pieces of paper that were glued together or two, or two of something that was stuck together and when you ripped it, like pieces of each other came off on the other side? That's what it's like. It's like when you try to unwind something and it doesn't, it's, there's no such thing as a clean break. So when you sleep with someone, you become bound to them, you become one with them, whether you're married or not. Because it's not possible for only one of these to connect and not the others. Now you might think, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't believe you. Because I feel like I know some people who sleep around and they do this or they do that. And I don't think their emotions are involved. I don't think their spirituality is involved. Oh, yes, it is. Just because they're not aware of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And let me tell you something. When someone can, can participate in those kinds of things and feel nothing, that is evidence of how deeply fractured and broken they are. Well, they seem to be able to do it and then just walk away. Of course they can because they've done it with other people. And so they've left half of themselves and then they did it again, which means they're a fourth of themselves. And they did it again, which means they're an eighth of themselves. They are deeply broken and fractured. Of course they don't feel anything. Of course, when you're upset, they look at you like you're nuts. Of course, their ability to be intimate with the Lord and their ability to connect with him has a great gap and chasm between themselves and God. Of course. It doesn't remove the reality that that's what happened. This is why God said it's only supposed to be a husband and wife. It was to protect us. Not to restrict us, but to protect us to say, I'm doing this. Not to remove pleasure from your life. Not so that you spend, you know, from the time you knew you were interested in the opposite sex all the way up. Not for you to spend all these years just banging your head up against the wall trying to control um, your, your sexual desire. It wasn't for those purposes. It was to protect us from becoming fractured human beings. 
It was to allow us to be full, clear reflections of his image. It was so that the day you do get married and you stand before the person and then you come together in sex, it was so that it was two people coming together as one, not as a half and a fourth together or an eighth and a sixteenth together. It wasn't, it wasn't so that that would be, and isn't that why people get married and they're fractured human beings looking for the other one to complete them and then they're all disappointed when it doesn't happen? This is the theology of it. This is how God created it. God gave us a protective box. And he said, sex looks like this. Self-control looks like this. Purity looks like this. Virtue looks like this. It looks like man, woman, marriage. And that's the design. That's the design. Anything outside of this box means you have moved outside of the protection that God meant for you. So you, you take, um, the woman goes outside the marriage and the man. She comes outside. She's no longer inside the protection of what God gave. In our culture that's pushing us to same-sex marriage and pushing us to things like that is not what God designed. But can I just say this for a moment in, in light of that? Because um, I just know there are people you love and there are people in this room that hear me say this and they see me put this up on the board and they hear me say same-sex is outside of God's design. And there's all kinds of things that start stirring up within you and questions that start to become um, uh, things that make you unable to hear anything else I said. Let me hear you. Let me hear, hear me say this. When sin entered the world, something broke. And I've looked in the eyes of people I love deeply who are saying to me, but Heather, I'm a, tra- I'm a woman and I'm attracted to women. I'm a man and I'm attracted to men. And I, what am I supposed to do? How do I reconcile that with what God's design is? And here's what I have to say to that, okay? Because I can't sit down with everybody in the room right now and, and go through, have a long conversation. But what I can tell you is this. God deeply loves you as much as any other person in the room Heterosexuality is never the goal. Holiness is the goal. What that might mean is that for you to live inside of God's um, design and protective, protective covering, it might mean that God calls you to a different kind of purity for your life. And I would so urge you to be willing to sit across from someone that you trust. A volunteer here, a, pa- a pastor here, a friend that is godly and have a conversation with them about this. And experience God's love through other people. And be willing to walk through a a difficult journey. But this is God's intent. And anything outside of it breaks this. Okay. Let me help you breathe a little bit, okay? I brought a fish today. Can you see him? Y'all, this was a deal. Did you know, it's, it's like you can't just go buy a goldfish. I thought you could just go buy a goldfish. Turns out there's some slightly legal, illegal things about how you obtain a goldfish. Anyway, we have one. <laughs> I needed a goldfish. Um, my husband went and got it for me. I don't even want to know all the details of how he obtained it. 
he's not really even telling me. He's covering his face. I don't want to know how you got this. <clears throat> All right. This goldfish has only ever known life, right? It's only ever swam in water. And as it swims in the water, all it knows is that it can breathe. It's breathing. It's living. Now, the goldfish can see out. And for the purposes of the illustration, isn't it true that the goldfish could probably see out and look at people walking and go, oh, I might like to walk. Look at all the people. I I don't find myself walking. I wish I could walk. Or the goldfish could look out at all kinds of things and just find them interesting and wonder if perhaps it was out of the fishbowl and it could participate in these interesting things, if it would have as much fun and joy as the people who are participating in these things seem to be having. The goldfish is completely unaware of what would happen to it if it came out of the fishbowl, correct? No idea. Now, if I go in here and I take the goldfish out of the fishbowl, what will it initially do? Flop around, right? It'll flop around begging for life, and we'll watch it do that. And then eventually, what will it do? Well, it'll stop flopping, and its little eyes will just keep pulsating, correct? I know, I sound so morbid, but it's true. It'll flop around, and then it'll stop, but it'll kind of like, its little gills will like be still having a little bit of hope. And then it will eventually just, there'll be nothing. Nothing. It will just stop moving and eventually die. And it will all be a complete shock to the goldfish. Because all it knows is that it's been breathing its entire life. It has no idea of the dangers that exist for it on the other side of the fishbowl. He has no idea that this container is preserving the calling that God has placed on his life. (laughs) No idea. But it's true. He has no idea that he's actually in better shape and he's actually freer. Couldn't we all say he's experiencing more freedom in the fishbowl than he would experience out of the fishbowl? Yes, we can. Such a silly illustration, but isn't it true? God gives us this box. He gives us this understanding in Scripture. He says, here are the rules. Here are the boundaries. Here are the restrictions, the guidelines, the protective design I've given to you. And if you will just live and exist in that, you will swim and you will breathe and you will live. If you look at things around you and you somehow convince yourself that that's more interesting or that's more interesting or if I could just do that or I see what they're doing or that seems attractive, that seems fun, that feels like it might feel good, and you step outside, you will flop around and then you will stop breathing and you will experience death, death of your character, death of your relationships, death of your emotions, death of your spiritual life. You will experience that. And as silly as we think of taking the fish out and throwing it on the table, we look just like that. And we make choices and decisions and then experience the consequences of those. And we're gasping for breath and we're begging God to help us breathe. And he does because he's kind and he's gracious. But I think he's thinking, why did you get out of the bowl? I'm not trying to restrict you. I'm trying to protect you. I was telling the volunteers this before um, we started tonight. Uh, My daughter is going to be a junior next year in high school. And she's 16 And she was talking about how excited she was for her junior year in high school. And she says, Mom, did you like your junior year of high school? And I said, you know what? I really, really did. It was a great year for me. It was also a very hard year for me. She says, why? I said, well, because that's when my boyfriend and I broke up and I got my heart broken. And she says, really, what happened? And as she asked me that question, I began 
to process out the next 10 questions she was going to ask me, and I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> really? So why did you guys break up? Well, your grandma and grandpa, my mom and dad, made us break up. Why? Well, babe, because they found out that we were having sex. And my parents, um, strong believers, strong Christians, and wanted to protect me and my future and made us break up, and I was devastated. Felt very much like I was going through a divorce. And I'm sitting here telling my 16-year-old daughter about when I lost my virginity at the age of 16. And she's saying to me, but mom, like, how big of a deal is it when, look at you now, you're fine. And I had to somehow try and communicate to her I didn't just get fine, right? You don't just wake up the next day just fine. I assure you that my 16-year-old self did not for one moment consider my 16-year-old daughter's conversation I would have. That moment two days ago was not considered that moment all those years ago. What Esau did what Jacob did. Esau did not consider years later what that decision, he didn't consider that. He made the decision hearing what it would cost, uh, knowing what it would cost, not believing what it would cost. There's a difference between knowing and believing. I don't think he really believed it would cost him that. Here's what we know today. The first time a boy will view pornography, most studies say eight years old. Many now say six years old. Six years old. Not because they're looking for it, because, you know, you can get on the Internet. I mean, just stuff just comes up. You search something on YouTube, something pops up. I mean, you know how this goes. They don't even have to be looking for it. Six years old. That's a first grader. 90% of kids ages 8 through 16 have viewed it. The highest percentage of daily viewers are people between the ages of 35 to 44, and it started as a kid. Listen to me. The highest like, daily views are for, for people between the ages of 35 and 44. So those of you that are sitting in this room that you think that you're going to conquer it, when, when marriage happens to you, or that it's just going to somehow disappear. Clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, it stays with you. Living together before you're married is the new normal. Half of men live with uh, their partner before they're married. Three-fourths of women live with their partner before they're married. Do the math. Half of men, right? Three-fourths of women. Can you put that together or do I need to do it for you? That means that men are living in sequence with more than one woman throughout their lifetime. Three-quarters of the women were only living with half the men. Sexually active teens. By the age of 18, half of them will be having sex. Those who won't are using oral sex as a loophole for remaining a virgin. That's what the purity culture did when I was growing up, right? I mean, don't have sex, then you can do everything but, right? I mean, all the way up to the line, all the way up to the point, you're just so angry. You're just angry because you don't go all the way, but you're all the way up to the line, and that was somehow okay. Marriages are ending in adultery. This is crazy. I'm, this is insane. Okay. TV nudity. Ready for this? Those of you who love Game of Thrones? I'm, I'm about to make everybody mad, so just brace yourself. I know, you just shut me out. I know, stay with me, stay with me. Stay with me. 
in the year between 2011 and 2012. So those couple of years. TV, not like pay-per-view, like TV nudity increased by 6,300%. That's insane. And that was 2012. And we have become so accustomed to it and so desensitized to it that we just absorb it. And this is what we do. We think our mind can be separate. Just because I see it with my eyes and imprints on my mind doesn't mean that it's affecting my spiritual life. Doesn't mean that it's affecting my emotions and how I view women or how I view men or how I feel. Doesn't mean that. Yeah, it does. Yes, it does. These statistics I've given you, that doesn't sound like sexual freedom to me. Does it sound like sexual freedom to you? To me, it sounds like a bunch of prisons that people just keep putting themselves in because of the decisions that they're making. Freedom is only found in the fishbowl. Stop grabbing the soup bowl. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17 in the message. So in the New Testament, it says this. Watch out for the Esau syndrome. Did you catch that? Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing. But by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. See, the devil knows what you need to understand, that desire can keep you from your destiny if you don't exhibit self-control. Lust will keep you from love. Self-control now leads to great sex later. I'm giving you little bite-sized pieces of my story throughout the weeks. I'm going to try and give it to you in a summary um, so that maybe perhaps you can understand my heart for this topic. And uh, I would say even in ministry life, my passion for this topic as I work um, with women and my husband, I work with couples and he works with guys. I was introduced to physical things when um, I was four. I was a freshman in high school and a senior guy took notice of me and decided he was going to teach me a few things and he did. All the way up to the line, but, right, you know, 14. Like, think of a 14-year-old that you know, right? Seems real young. At 16 years old, well, between 14 and 16, I just then it must not be a big deal. And so any guy I dated, anybody that, you know, I went out with anybody really at all, that's just what we did. We just did that stuff. I didn't even really know if I enjoyed it. I just know that's what we did, right? That's just what you did. So we did it. At the age of 16, I started dating a guy. I really, really liked him. And I wanted him to really, really like me. And he said he really, really liked me. And we made this decision that we were in love and we decided to have sex. It wasn't me trying to use him or him trying to use me. Really, really wasn't. But this happened. My mind, body, and soul became one with his mind, body, and soul because that is the supernatural power of sex. It just is. When my parents found out and forced us to break up, I felt like somebody had ripped like half of me out like a part, like my whole body was just being ripped in half. It hurt so much, I had like a physical pain. Because what was happening was, in a literal sense, a divorce. When God says you become one, it's because He knows when you unwind, it will wreck you, and it wrecked me. So I became half of a person 
And then I would go in search of value from people because I felt incomplete. And I just wanted, uh, I kept thinking maybe the next person would let me and we would feel valuable and maybe I wouldn't do all of that this next time and I could be better about it and I could manage it and control it. And it just never went that way because once you cross the line, you just keep crossing it because you figure out how to manage that sin and so you just keep doing that. And I was a pastor's daughter and I was a follower of Jesus and I was going to church and I was doing all of those things and I was having my devotions and begging God for forgiveness and telling him I wouldn't do it again. All the time my heart was hurting. I ended up 19 years old, freshman in college, after, after my freshman year actually. And a friend of mine invited me to a party. And I had like that gut check, you know, you get that gut check that just tells you this probably isn't a good idea, right? You just know it. But of course, because I had learned that I felt like I could manage sin and I could manage pretty much anything in my life, I went to this uh, party, which really turned out to be um, just a couple of people in a hotel room. And my friend, went off with her boyfriend and I was left with two football players in the hotel room and I was in the wrong time at the wrong place. And experienced a trauma and a violent assault that no woman should ever have to experience. Was that my fault? No, it wasn't my fault, but you know what did happen? Of course that wasn't my fault. I was so numb to like anything. And I had such a low opinion of myself that when the check entered my soul, like don't do that, I just ignored it because I thought, who cares? And when that happened to me, I didn't tell a living soul for a very long time because I started to convince myself it was my fault. Of course it's my fault because I make stupid decisions and because I put myself in bad situations. And so, of course, it's my fault. And I convinced myself of that. And then I really began spiraling out of control. And then the drinking and the drugs and the extensive promiscuity began all throughout my college years. You know, it's not funny, but later years I would joke. I just dated like a whole team at a time like the baseball team, you know. I mean, that's like just what I did. Then I got engaged. Later uh, in college, I was a senior. I got engaged to a guy and I found myself in this relationship that was incredibly abusive and physically abusive, emotionally abusive in every way. Again, it just only ever gets worse until you finally decide that you're going to live differently. And so I came to a fork in the road and and decided what do I really want from my life? At what point am I gonna decide that I might actually have value? Because see, where I had been a whole person, then I became half of a person, and then I became a fourth of a person, and then I became the whole, that's just what happens. And I was such a fraction of a person. And at some point, you have to reach a desperate point where you just go, I just want to be whole. Jesus, can you, can you make me whole? I ended that engagement, and less than a year later, I met my husband. And my husband, who is here, and he gives me permission to talk about this, but my husband had been introduced to pornography at the age of 11. And it grabbed a hold of him. And he became addicted to pornography and so grew up throughout the rest of his life. He was in that statistic. It doesn't, it doesn't let go of you. And when we got married, it didn't fix it. In fact, I brought in my baggage. He brought in his baggage and it was just a hurricane. Neither one of us could fix the other one. And so the first 10 years of our marriage were full of infidelity, of lying, of addiction, because that's what it does. It only grows until you get desperate enough that you wanna choose to believe that God can make you whole and that purity can exist inside of you, that self-control is possible with the Holy Spirit's power living inside of you. See, purity isn't about virginity. Purity is about holiness. 
this, so I wore this ring tonight. This is, um, this was actually my purity ring in high school that my parents gave to me. And I don't really ever wear it around, but so every once in a while, I'll put it on. You know why I put it on? Because it would be easy for me to look at that and think, well, I guess that doesn't mean anything anymore. It means everything to me. Purity isn't about virginity, it's about holiness. And God has made me holy. And God has made me whole. And God has made me new. And God has made my husband new. So I don't know what your story is. It may not be as fraught with negative as mine. And maybe it's worse. But you have to decide whether you're, what you're going to be. Like, are you going to be Esau? Are you going to be Jacob? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to choose the fish bowl? Or are you going to choose the soup bowl? Are you going to trust that God has a plan for your life? Or are you going to trust that maybe the immediate feels better than what the future could ever feel like? You are going to make decisions at your age that will affect the way the rest of your life goes. Listen to me. This is the age to decide. This is the age to determine. I'm going to go this way instead of that way. I don't know if I'm going to get married, but if I ever do someday, I want to know that I'm going to set that thing up to win. I don't know what my future may hold, and I don't know if I'm going to have kids, but I want to know that when they grow up, they're going to ask me questions, and I'm going to have to answer them. And what are you going to tell them? What story do you want to tell? Because that day will come. God can redeem and restore anything. God can supernaturally restore you. But you got to choose. I'm going to lead you in a prayer time tonight. And I want you to decide. I'm not going to ask you to sign a card or to do something, you know, like that. I'm not going to do that. But I do want you to sit with the Lord for a moment and I want you to decide. I want you to decide which bowl you're going to take. I want you to decide whether you can choose to believe this. I want you to decide if you need to ask God to like, bind, like bind you back together. I need you to, I need you to ask God if he needs, if he would desire for you to confess anything, if he would desire for you to talk to somebody, if he would desire for you to do anything like that. If you would desire for you to ask for forgiveness, would you bow your heads with me? With your heads bowed, I'm going to do something a little different, enti not entirely planned. The band is coming. Um, I'm, I'm asking my husband if he would come up here and help me with something for a minute. Um, guys in the room, gentlemen in the room. I want you to stand up in your seats. Everybody's head is bowed, but all the guys in the room, I want you to stand up. And I've asked him to pray over you, to pray for how he would have wanted someone to pray for his own self at your age. So with your head bowed, he's gonna do that for you.
saying things right now to uh, each person sitting here. And I want to pray three things for the men who are standing right now. First of all, I'm going to pray for strength. Lord, I pray for the kind of strength that you can give to us, not physical strength, not machismo, machismo or bravado, but a kind of strength, Lord, that allows us to talk about things that hurt, that allows us to say things out loud that are embarrassing, a kind of strength that cares more about what you think of us than the person next to us. Would you make us strong in weakness? Would you give each man here the strength to say the truth to someone else who might be causing them to stumble? A friend who's been a friend for a long time, but all he talks about is just negative stuff about women or gross stuff on his phone. And it just brings us down. Would you give us strength to say something out loud? Would you give us strength to say something in a relationship that we're in right now? Let us be the men to lead this out, to say our relationship isn't healthy. Let's make it healthy. Let's get healthy. Let's get whole. Give them strength. Second thing, Lord, I pray is give the men in this room right now wisdom. Make us smart. Give us knowledge. It can be intimidating to walk around and think that we're not smart. And so then we just sort of act out in this other way to try and hide that insecurity. But give us wisdom in your word. Even tonight, the things that we learned about, let us take that in. Repeat it. Write it down. Let it be knowledge inside of us, something that we can claim no longer to be ignorant about. We know what happens when we act out in our bodies, when we act out of alignment with you. Give us wisdom to see someone that looks like it could be fun, it looks like it could be good, it looks like it's gonna feel good right away. Would you give us wisdom to go, that's not good. I can see what that is. I can see what's gonna happen if I choose that road. Give us wisdom to look at the friends around us and go, I don't think I'm around good people. I need to make a wise decision and find new friends. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know what's right and what's wrong and to stand up for what we believe in and what we value. And the last thing I pray for, the third thing, Lord, I pray for purity. I'm praying for purity right now over the men in this room, pure hearts, clean hands right now that we put away the things of boys that we put away the things that we know are wrong that are harmful that are impure that we take ownership of our purity that we decide what goes in our eyes that we decide what comes out of our mouths that we decide where and what we touch and listen to and expose ourselves to, that we become men who decide how we're going to live out our purity. I pray, Lord, that there would be a collection of guys that would come out of this room. They all sat in here and heard the same thing. They all sat in here and, and were taught from the same teaching that they would collectively come together and say, we have to fight for each other. I got your back, you get my back. We've got to stand together because there's an enemy who is out there roaring, uh, prowling like a lion, seeking to devour us, seeking to take us down, to lie to us, to kill us, to destroy us. We men have to stand together and look out for each other be strong and wise and pure. I pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, ladies, stand up with them. Everybody stand. Heavenly Father, I pray over these women in this room. Father, I pray that you would give them a bravery 
Father, that you would just bestow a bravery and a boldness upon them. Help them know they can say no. They don't have to say yes. Father, I pray that they would so deeply know that they are your daughters. They are daughters of the king. They have an inheritance in the kingdom, and they can walk in that identity. Lord, I pray that they would so deeply know that they are made in beauty. They exude beautiful, and what the world would seek to tell them is beautiful is wrong. Lord, that they are beautiful and they were designed by you, created by you, gifted by you. Lord, I pray that every one of these women in this place that is covered in shame would rise up and say, enemy, you have me no more. I might have done that. I might have said this. This might have happened to me, but it doesn't define me. I am not my sin. I am not my shame. I am not what is behind me. I am only what is before me. Lord, I pray that for every man and woman in this room, Father, that they would be warriors in your kingdom, that they would go against the flow of this culture, that they would not succumb to what the world says is okay or right or what the world calls love. Lord, I pray that they would see God's design as protection and not restriction. And they, they would stand up and they would stand boldly and they would speak truth and they would offer grace and we would love each other well, but we would lead each other better. Lord, I pray for this generation to be a pure generation, a new generation. Lord, I pray that they would rise up in your name and for your glory, Lord, we say amen. Now, we're going to sing one final song together. And here's the thing. I'm not up here telling you and teaching and preaching, hey, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop, stop, stop. That's not what I want you to hear. What I want you to leave here hearing and absorbing and receiving and believing is not stop sinning, but start rising up. Start being who God made you to be. Walk out of here, not with your head down, with your head up. With your head up and a new realization that you don't have to live in what was. So we're going to sing this song together, which is, I love this song. Um, I love this song. Y'all going to know why I love this song. Um, and let's literally declare with heads held high. And as always, as always, if you want a, a different kind of moment and you want to use this space as an altar or you... You know, you just want to dance in the aisle. Doesn't bother me. Whatever you want to do to declare that you are who God says you are. But let's sing this together. Through the darkness, your love. 